tonight on NBC. Will everyone in the cardiac surgical department please raise your hands? Thank you. You're all fired. Based on an inspiring true story. Any department who places billing above care, you will be terminated. One doctor will break every rule. Just tell me what you need, what your patients need. To inspire a revolution. Let's get into some trouble. Let's be doctors again. From the network that brings you This Is Us, New Amsterdam, tonight on NBC. This podcast is brought to you by Simply Light. Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories because it tastes so good. Welcome to The Feast. I'm your host, Laura Carlson, and we're bringing you stories from the best meals of history. A warm November day in 1942 was the last thing anyone needed. The grand opening of the Alcan Highway, which many Americans had already taken to calling simply the Alaskan Highway, had been scheduled for the 15th of the month. The highway had already received the dubious honor of being the most expensive construction project of World War II, costing U.S. and Canadian taxpayers more than $500 million. But everyone agreed. It was also an engineering marvel. Army workers had created a 1,500-mile-long highway in one of the most inhospitable climates in the world. Not only that, they had done it in a little under nine months. But the spot for the Alcan Highway's grand debut had been chosen with care. It was a beautiful vista over a frozen lake nestled amongst glacial mountains. It was a symbolic location that was to be called Soldier's Summit in honor of the army men who had built the road over the past nine months. Now, normally at this time of year, somewhere above the 49th parallel, temperatures usually hovered around 20 to 30 degrees below freezing. But a Chinook, the dry, warm winds that occasionally swept in from the Pacific Ocean, almost 400 miles to the west, had caused thermometers to rise to a relatively balmy 55 degrees. Although it gave those in the area the unusual chance to take off their parkas and mittens, it was a nightmare for those with an eye on the highway. The carefully built bridges over the frozen Kluwani Lake were slowly sinking into the melting ice and rising rivers. The highway everyone had gathered to celebrate was disintegrating before their very eyes. The Canadian and American dignitaries who had intended to drive up for the momentous event, found themselves stranded back in the town of Whitehorse, almost 160 miles away. It would take another four days before the temperatures settled back down, and the convoy could make the long drive into the wilderness to officially open the Alaskan Highway. It took four days for the Chinook to blow itself out and for thermometers to drop, back to more seasonable temperatures, of around 15 below zero, making the bridge over Kluwani Lake crossable once more. The 200 invited guests and 100 troops 
slowly motored along the new highway from Whitehorse, arriving only that evening of the 19th to find their sleeping accommodations that night would not be five-star hotels or even cozy bed and breakfasts, but basic military barracks, hastily constructed the day before. The Secretary of the Alaskan Territory, Bob Bartlett, found himself bunked in amongst Canadian members of Parliament, not to mention Mounties, U.S. Army officers, and journalists from both sides of the border. After a day-long trek through the Yukon in sub-zero temperatures, everyone was in need of a good meal. But how do you hold a banquet in the middle of the Canadian wilderness? But even here, there was a sense of occasion. A blueprinting machine in the nearby administration office was pressed into service to create programs and menus for the invited guests. Although they may have been an unusual shade of blue, everyone seemed impressed by the feat, commenting that they resembled engravings more than regular programs. In the Yukon, you used what you had. As the guests crammed into the small army mess hall, built to feed soldiers, not state dignitaries, they were treated with all army rationing and the local wildlife could provide. Mountain sheep, caught that day on the St. Elias Range, were the main course. The centerpiece of a menu that was designed to honor both the American and Canadian forces who had helped to build the highway. Side dishes were jazzed up with call-outs to spots in Alaska and Canada, like Tanana Potatoes, named for a town in Alaska, or Takini Corn, a reference to the nearby Takini Hot Springs in the Yukon. But in November above the 49th parallel, it was hard to convince anyone that the vegetables and fruits that appeared on the plates that night were locally sourced. Although army men insisted that the tomatoes and lettuce and the Slim's River salad on the menu that night had come from the garden right outside the barracks, the arctic winds that howled outside the mess hall made it a hard claim to swallow. But that night... Even basic army rations were rebranded in honor of the celebrations. Freeze-dried coffee became Coffee Alla Yukon, and powdered gelatin was renamed Siwash as a nod to the local indigenous communities who had been instrumental in plotting the highway's route north to Alaska. Of course, that the road had been finished at all was still a surprise to most. Still more than a decade away from becoming the 49th U.S. state, the Alaskan Territory was essentially cut off from the rest of the U.S. No permanent road out of the territory existed. Most people relied on boats or small planes to get back and forth. Even a road linking the Alaskan Territory to the Canadian Yukon or even British Columbia to the south had often been dismissed as a pipe dream. The harsh conditions, where winter lasted for almost nine months out of the year, let alone the mountains, rivers, and the rather dangerous wildlife, suggested any permanent road was out of the question. Traveling to or from Alaska before the 1940s either usually meant you knew a good pilot, or that you had brought along your own trusty team of sled dogs. 
This was a region where winter temperatures could plunge to 70 degrees below zero. Traveling by land was not for the faint-hearted. But from the 1920s onwards, folks continually lobbied for a highway connection to Alaska. In 1932, a man with a fabulous name of Donald McDonald, known as the father of the Alaskan Highway, tried to prove a permanent route was possible. He hired Alaskan adventurer Clyde Slim Williams to drive his sled dog team from Fairbanks, Alaska to Seattle, Washington. Williams and his team did make it, after only a short five and a half months. Yet action on the Alaskan highway languished for most of the 1930s, as both the cost and even feasibility of the road daunted even the most idealistic of both American and Canadian politicians. But then, everything changed. We interrupt this program to bring you a special news bulletin. The Japanese have attacked Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, by air, President Roosevelt has just announced. The attack also was made on all naval and military activities on the principal island of Oahu. The bombing of Pearl Harbor shook North America. The U.S. now found itself in the middle of a world war. And suddenly, the threat wasn't just across the Atlantic and Europe, but across the Pacific as well. The entire west coast of North America now seemed at risk. Japanese incendiary balloons, which floated their way across the Pacific Ocean, soon were causing forest fires as far east as Wyoming. In June of 1942, Japanese forces occupied the Aleutian Islands, the westernmost tips of Alaska. So to Washington, D.C. and Ottawa, the West was a sitting duck, open to any attack from the Pacific. But how to defend it? British Columbia and Alaska were still almost entirely rural. Few roads existed north of Vancouver, British Columbia, or west of Edmonton and Alberta. The few towns that did dot the Alaskan or northern Canadian territories were mostly remnants of the gold rush at the end of the 19th century. And barely a handful had a population bigger than a few hundred. Up until the 1940s, Canadian forces had needed to rely on planes to bring military men and supplies to the Northern Territories, or even beyond, to allies in the Soviet Union. They relied on what was known as the Northwest Staging Route, a series of seven or eight small airports, whose runways were often barely more than a clear field. Without larger military airports, supply planes had to be small only able to carry a few men or supplies at a time. Not that the plane's size made the journey an easy one. Pilots had to navigate the Canadian Rockies and often Arctic temperatures on every journey. No official record of how many planes were lost on the Northwest Aging Route was ever made, but estimates put the number in the low hundreds during the 1930s and 1940s alone. So by the end of 1941, it was clear. What the U.S. and Canada needed was a road, a reliable way to get troops and supplies up to these territories to defend the West Coast. And so, the old idea of the Alaskan-Canadian highway that Donald MacDonald had proposed years ago surfaced once again, a highway that would finally link Alaska to the rest of North America. 
but they quickly realized even if the highway were to start in the closest northern town accessible by road, Dawson Creek in British Columbia, just to get to Alaska would mean the highway would need to stretch for at least 1,000 miles. 1,000 miles through mountains, frozen lakes, glaciers, permafrost, and more. And not only that, it was a 1,000 miles of road that had to be built as quickly as possible. The U.S. wanted the road done in a year. Most folks said it couldn't be done. That the survey of the road alone would take two years, let alone building the thing. Similar projects in the past had taken decades. But the Pacific threat loomed large over both Washington and Ottawa. And less than 10 weeks after the attack on Pearl Harbor, President Franklin Roosevelt approved the Alaskan Highway in February of 1942, allocating $10 million from his emergency war fund for a survey of what was to be known as the Alaskan-Canadian Highway. That equaled approximately $6,700 for each of the 1,500 miles of the proposed route. And in today's dollars, that'd be something along the lines of $104,000 per mile for the entire project. By the time the road was completed, that figure would rise to $330,000 per mile. Although most of the road would travel through Canadian territory, the U.S. would be responsible for the majority of both funding and the labor needed to build it. They would also have free use of the road during wartime, the U.S. agreeing to turn over custody of the Alaskan Highway to Canada six months after the end of the war. But in early 1942, who knew how long that would be? Following Roosevelt's call for a survey of the road, U.S. and Canadian forces insisted that the road could be completed by the end of the year, before 1943, what many believed to be an impossible deadline. But what was clear to everyone was that if the road were to be built, it would need a massive labor force. Eventually, over 10,000 men were reassigned to work on the Alaskan Highway, often recruited from Army training camps all over the United States. Now, we all know an army marches on its stomach. And in building the Alaskan Highway, the U.S. Army found itself with an interesting logistical problem. As road-building teams set out to build the highway, half starting from the northern terminus in Fairbanks, Alaska, and working their way south, the other half starting from the southern endpoint in Dawson Creek, British Columbia, and working their way north, both teams were slowly but surely moving away from supply hubs into the very heart of the Canadian wilderness. And how exactly do you feed an army perpetually on the move? Not only that, one on the move into some of the most inhospitable climates on the planet. This podcast is brought to you by Simply Light. Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories because it tastes so good. So it was clear that both teams would need not only mobile kitchens and cooks, but also a significant supply of rations that would get them through the long months of road building in rural Canada. Now, military rations were nothing new in World War II. 
armies had long struggled to figure out how to properly feed their troops. And soldiers had been guaranteed all kinds of food, and even alcohol, all the way back dating to the Romans, when they were often paid in bread, wine, and even salt. As late as the War of 1812, U.S. soldiers regularly received a rum allowance as part of their official rations. President Andrew Jackson earned the enduring hatred of many a soldier when he officially abolished the U.S. Army rum ration in 1832, replacing booze with coffee, arguing that it was better to have an awake soldier than a drunk one. But the modern military ration is often considered to date from World War I, when the U.S. Army introduced an organized system where the kind of food a soldier ate depended on where he or she was stationed, whether on an army base, in the trenches, or otherwise out in the field, cut off from a kitchen. This last kind, often called reserve rations, was food that didn't need to be kept chilled and didn't need to be cooked. In the early days, simple reserve rations were often just hard biscuits or dried beef, things that could last days or even months stored in a soldier's pack. But biscuits and jerky is hard to live on for very long. So in World War I, the army started distributing canned food to its soldiers, usually some kind of boiled meat and vegetables. And for a while, the can seemed like a perfect solution. It kept food fresh for weeks or even months, and the early tin meals were way more nutritious than the early days of just biscuits and jerky. By the 1940s, nutritional science had revolutionized military rationing. Food scientists had discovered a gold mine. Dehydration, the ability to remove water from foods, solved one of the Army's longest-standing problems. How to ship heavy, fresh food to soldiers stationed all over the world. Dehydration made food lighter and shelf-stable. Now eggs, milk, even vegetables, items long missing from army food, became new targets for dehydration, and soon powdered eggs were appearing on soldiers' plates everywhere from the beaches of Normandy to the South Pacific. Dehydration was seen as a breakthrough. The ability to send nutritious foods out to soldiers was no longer burdened by issues of weight. And if army scientists were to be believed, dehydrated foods tasted just as good as the original. At least according to the 1940s war board films advertising the new process. Dehydrated food is easy to keep. The Quartermaster Corps Laboratory has established this in exhaustive tests. Only water need be added. When cooked, it is often impossible to detect a difference in taste. And constant tests show practically no difference in vitamin content between the dehydrated and the untreated product. But you couldn't take the water out of everything. And even powdered milk and vegetables needed a bit of cooking to make them at least edible, despite what the films might have said. What the army also needed was the modern equivalent of hardtack biscuits. Something a soldier could eat anywhere and everywhere without having access to a kitchen or even a fire. And so, the sea ration was born. When a soldier is out in the field and away from camp cooks, he must carry his own ration. Pre-cooked meats for emergency rations were developed in the Army laboratory for this purpose. Here, too, emphasis is put on taste 
as well as on the food value of the ration, which consists of a can of meat for each meal and a second unit containing concentrated soup, hardtack, coffee powder, and candy. Total weight, three and a half pounds for three square meals a day. The Alaskan Highway Army workers found themselves as prime test cases for the sea ration after it was introduced in the early 1940s. As they worked to clear trees and level gravel, the teams moved steadily away from the supply towns of Fairbanks and Dawson Creek. And with all available space and transport trucks going to building equipment, there was simply no easy way for the Army to ship in fresh food for the soldiers at these camps. Which meant, apart from a basic and mobile mess hall, most of the soldiers working on the highway found themselves staring at three square meals a day of sea rations. The 93rd Engineering Battalion, a predominantly African-American force from Camp Livingston, Louisiana, had been sent to the Canadian wilderness to work on the highway. There, without regular access to fresh food, reserve rations became the staple diet for most of the men for up to six months at a time. Although the camp cook had stocks of the Army's famous powdered eggs, milk, and vegetables, the sea rations made up the bulk of most of the men's diets. By the 1940s, sea rations came in one of three flavors. Canned corned beef hash, canned chili con carne, or canned Viennese sausage, what some soldiers dubbed Yukon shrimp. Imagine eating the same three meals. Not only that, the same three canned meals every day for six months straight. No wonder many of the men took to hunting to bulk out their meals, or maybe just for a sense of variety. When Canadian war correspondent Peter Sturzberg visited the 93rd's camp and sampled the food, he reported, I had always understood that the American army prided itself on the quality of the food which it gave its men. Whether this is true or not, the meals at the army camps along the road were without exception, bad. In fact, they were the worst I had ever eaten. After a few weeks of sea rations, soldiers would do almost anything to get a little variety into their diets. So the few times the road workers encountered a local indigenous community, soldiers would compete to trade their canned beef hash for local smoked salmon. Captain Robert Platt Boyd of the 93rd Regiment once shot a moose weighing close to a 1,000 pounds. The fresh meat the camp soldiers enjoyed as a result made him the most popular guy around. During the summer of 1942, a reporter from Time magazine visited the soldiers and was able to watch the hunting skills of the highway doughboys firsthand. Dinner could regularly feature bear steak, snow quail, and spruce partridge what the army men had taken to calling Yukon chicken. All were meats that helped to bulk out the by-now-dreaded sea rations. Telephone wires were regularly used as fishing lines in nearby lakes, hauling out large lake trout by the handful. But even with these added local flavors, the strain of the work and the climate hung over the army highway teams. The frigid temperatures of the long-lasting winter did little to improve the appeal of the sea ration, since the meat hash rarely stayed warm more than seconds out of the pan. Some soldiers told tales of their food 
freezing right on their forks. And the summer? Well, it had its own problems as well. The mosquitoes of the Canadian Yukon plagued the soldiers. The insects were everywhere. Some soldiers even took to wearing their mosquito netting right into the mess hall. You had to eat with your head net on, General Hodge, commander of the Alaskan Highway Project, later explained. You would raise the head net, and by the time you got the food on the spoon up to your mouth, it would be covered with mosquitoes. You were eating mosquitoes half the time, he explained. Whether it was the thought of facing another long Canadian winter, or perhaps worse still, the idea of having to eat sea rations for another three months, the Army highway teams worked quickly, and on October 25th of 1942, the northern and southern highway teams met in the middle of the Yukon Territory. The road, connecting Dawson Creek, British Columbia, to Fairbanks, Alaska, was complete. Three months ahead of schedule. And so a little less than a month later, the ceremony at Soldier Summit officially opened the Alaskan, or Alcan, Highway. And perhaps fittingly, the banquet held as part of the festivities featured many of the same foods the soldiers had survived on for months. Local game like mountain sheep and moose steak, along with all the dehydrated foods the army was so proud of. Coffee, milk, eggs, even some beans, peas, and carrots. But not a sea ration in sight. Ironically, though, the Alaskan Highway wasn't really finished. The road at parts was little more than a path graveled over. Civilian engineers would spend the better part of another year improving the road, declaring the Alaskan Highway really finished only in 1943. But for the Army's part, the major job was done. Supply trucks could now trek between depots in Whitehorse or Fairbanks when needed. And the road even had another important function, helping pilots navigate the path from British Columbia north to Alaska. By following the path of the road, pilots could avoid getting lost amidst the northern mountains and glaciers, something that had claimed dozens, if not hundreds, of planes years earlier. But what about the sea rations? More than a decade after the end of World War II, the Army launched an official investigation into military nutrition during the 1940s. When looking at the sea ration, doctors found that the rations actually were insufficient to meet the daily nutritional needs of fighting men. The medical department strongly urged that sea rations not be used for longer than five consecutive days. Not only were soldiers technically not getting enough to eat, but the army found that men often refused to eat the rations, preferring to eat nothing at all than the tinned hash of the sea ration. And then there was this gem from the report that eating cold sea rations, quote, produced certain digestive disturbances. Ick. Unsurprisingly, the sea ration was officially retired by the Army in the late 1950s. No apology or even acknowledgement was ever made to the thousands of men who had survived on often the sea ration alone for up to six months at a time when building the Alaskan Highway. The Alaskan Highway is still around today, of course, although its days as an Army supply route are pretty much over. 
Still, more than 300,000 road trippers make the journey from Dawson Creek to Fairbanks, Alaska each year. And if you have a few spare hundred hours, you can even watch some of these road trips happening in real time on YouTube. If you'd like to read more about the building of the Alaskan Highway, considered even today to be one of the greatest engineering feats of the 20th century, there are some great books out there, such as Kenneth Coates' The Alaska Highway in World War II. Also, the late scholar John Virtue wrote a great book on the African-American soldiers involved in building the highway, a much-needed look at the attempt to desegregate the U.S. Army during World War II. We'll put up a link to both these books, along with links to the PBS and History Channel specials on the Alaskan Highway, on our website at thefeastpodcast.org. We'll also put up a menu from the November 1942 opening ceremonies of the Alaskan Highway, so you can take a look at the bulldozer butter and coffee all Yukon for yourselves. The Feast is written and produced by me, Laura Carlson. Technical Direction by Mike Port. If you've been enjoying the feast, why not get in touch? We'd love to hear from our listeners. You can reach us at our website or by sending an email to thefeast at thefeastpodcast.org. Now, we love making this podcast, and we want to keep doing it for as long as possible. But we need your help. Please consider becoming a supporting member today by visiting us at patreon.com slash feast podcast and that's all for us this week we'll be back in two weeks time with another great meal that made history i'm laura carlson and this is the feast